The robots we developed uh, are for specific applications, so they look different. Uh, the robot, the climbing robot, has to be small in size and has to have the right body structure that allows the robot to go through small holes. Dikai Lu is a director at the Robotics Institute at UTS. Uh, we like to play with robots. <laughs> And he's describing autonomous robotic systems that assist with steel bridge maintenance. There's a few deployed on Sydney Harbour Bridge right now. The goal of the project is to improve workers' occupational health and safety. People have to work uh, and hide and work in confined space. Uh, they need to conduct abrasive blasting to remove all the paint and the rust. But the blasting operation is very labor-intensive, very dusty and very noisy. It's a very difficult and dangerous environment for people to work in. So the new robots replace humans in completing the task. The blasting robot can do sensing and perception of the bridge, find its location in the bridge structure, plan its motion and the blasting trajectory and then do the blasting to remove rust and all the pain. All done by the robot. When you think about automation of work, what probably comes to mind are jobs like the one Dikai describes. Jobs that are repetitive or structured, and ones that will be replaced by machines first. But machines are beginning to replace human judgment and other cognitive tasks, not just physical labour, seeing millions of people unemployed in coming decades. What will become of the unemployed masses? Idleness and depression, or bountiful travel and leisure? And how will we distribute welfare equally? You're listening to Think Digital Futures. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Work is the center of life, most important part of our being, ordained by God, uh, and uh, work is the place where we live and move and have our being. Uh, work becomes uh, uh, the place where we seek our humanity. This is Ben Honeycutt. He's a historian at Iowa University in the States, and he's been studying work and leisure for over 46 years and published several books on the topic. He says the concept of work is a relatively new one. Before the Industrial Revolution, you know, people didn't get paycheck. Um, uh, by and large, the, the majority of the economy functioned outside of the economy, uh, in, in families. Uh, they, how people made a living was on a farm, uh, in a household, with a division of tasks within the household, <clears throat> uh, as, as the dominant economic system, 90 95% of humanity lived that way before the Industrial Revolution. For thousands of years, agrarian societies consisted of producing and maintaining crops and farmland. The concept of work as we know it today started with the Industrial Revolution in the latter half of the 18th century. Work begins with the Industrial Revolution. 
uh, and what we understand is work, that focused activity, that activity that's taken outside of life, of ordinary life, the family, the community, you go to some other place to, to have a job, a job has its own circle, uh, identity uh, and purpose, um, and you're paid. Uh, the, 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 the labor labor market begins. Fast forward to the 21st century, the five-day, 40-hour work week we all know so well was not always the norm. Many social reformers, religious and community leaders and progressive politicians had to fight for it. At the beginning, uh, beginning of the, 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 uh, the 19th century, uh, workers in the United States and throughout uh, the industrial world fought to shorten their hours of labor. Uh, in the United States, it was the cause of the awakening of the American labor movement. Uh, historians agree. It wasn't right, uh, wages or organization that sparked the unions in the United States. It was the issue of shorter hours, the 10-hour day. Uh, and gradually through that century, beginning in the, at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, workers either in unions or um, just, you know, average Joes and Jills in the marketplace, um, bargaining with their bosses, you know, with how long you're going to work this week. Uh, working hours got gradually shorter. 10-hour uh, days, 8-hour days, 6-day week become 5-and-a-half, 5-day week over that long 100 years. Working hours were cut virtually in half. There was once the confident expectation that economic progress would pave the way to humane and moral progress. After providing for the material necessities of life, technology would free us for better things, like seeing family and friends and for travel. In 1884, socialist William Morris said that in beautiful factories of the future, surrounded by gardens for relaxation, employees should only work four hours a day. And in 1930, economist John Maynard Keynes claimed that advances in technology would see people working just 15 hours a week by 2030. So, where did we go wrong? I can give you a long list of folks that, that uh, were talking about the, uh, the future uh, in which work would be increased, not eliminated by any means, but, but would still be less and less. I, I call that vision uh, liberation capitalism. <laughs> uh, that capitalism's final flower, uh, its final accomplishment would not just be uh, 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 enough goods of, of life, the, the uh, material goods uh, of life to satisfy human beings, but also uh, enough time to enjoy the, the good things that capitalism was providing. Um, that was the vision. No one predicted it, uh, the end of it. Economic growth can either yield more leisure or more consumption. Ben says the latter prevailed. Luxury in terms of those goods and services that you know people had never needed before, uh, never seen before. Uh, American business and I think throughout the world, I'm, I'm reading other, about other countries, followed suit um, by 
um, beginning to market new goods and services as a way of keeping industry booming, keeping the center of life in work and in the marketplace. One of the counter-arguments to the shorter work week is that we simply can't afford it. That if we were to work less, our standard of living would collapse and the welfare state would crumble. Government intervention has certainly helped ensure the economy keeps churning. Governments throughout the world begin to intervene in the marketplace to create work uh, by whatever means necessary, uh, government jobs if necessary, to keep people fully employed. Uh, The 40-hour week was established as the normal standard working week, full-time, full employment, was begun uh, as a political um, definition, begun as a political definition, uh, and continues to this day. Uh, Governments throughout the world doing whatever is necessary to make sure that work is for more work and wealth is for more wealth and that that time does not fall out of the economy, either as unemployment or shorter uh, working hours. So I think government certainly has a role, uh, spending trillions upon trillions of dollars uh, uh, to to make sure that uh, we have, quote, full-time, full employment. It's also deeply entrenched in our culture. Ben says work becomes the centre of morality. Leisure is, is trivialized uh, and, and um, um, not seen to be important. It's just you know silly and, and not to be uh, not to be um, taken seriously at all. That change, work becomes the centre of life, becomes a modern religion in a lot of ways. Uh, leisure, by contrast, again is seen in a, a very negative light. Where you know we even now look at people who do not share uh, our uh, outrage <laughs> at a person who is a slacker, uh, who doesn't you know uh, believe as strongly in the, uh, the work ethic as we do. says that the fourth industrial revolution may offer a new chance to redefine work as we know it. There was a great disruption with the industrial revolution in the 18th century, which made lots of jobs obsolete. Our current revolution will see a much faster transition, where machines replace not just repetitive tasks and manual labour, but human judgement and thought. According to a report by McKinsey & Co., Anywhere from 400 to 800 million workers across the globe could be displaced by automation by 2030. So what will we do with all that time? Ben says he already witnesses a shift in how we view work and that work is failing as a faith. He says people are turning away from consumerism to non-earning sources of fulfilment like travel or gaining new skills. More and more of us, especially younger folks, are buying experiences rather than tangible goods and services. Um, The millennial generation are not so much interested in having property, owning a mortgage. Um, They'd rather, you know, spend their lives and spend their money on intangibles, on experiences, Research from McKinsey has also found that over the past few years, spending on experiences has grown nearly four times faster than spending on goods. Ben says he hopes the economy will shift from one based on money to one based on time. 
uh, the new economies, the demand for time will increase. Uh, you'll need more time to consume the new goods in the experience and transformation economies than you did previously in the tangible world of services and manufacturing. Uh, so it's just a simple, simple change in, in uh, the dynamics of consumption. Uh, it's no, no revolution here at all. And the choices that we make will be the same between work and not working, work and leisure. We'll, all, we'll make them uh, individually, <laughs> uh, uh, privately. Uh, we'll decide, and it's not up to me to tell this person or that person how much money they need vis-a-vis how much time they would like to, to use to consume those things that they, they want to consume, those experiences they want to consume. It'll, it'll be up to each individual, but I'm, my prediction, and I'm, I, th- I think I'm convinced it's going to happen, is that um, uh, these new economies will, will change that calculus for every man, every woman. Uh, when they're they're looking at the division of their life between work and and, uh, and time to to have experiences or express their transformations. Now, of course, that doesn't solve the question of funding for the unemployed. A highly contested idea is universal basic income, or UBI, money that is paid by the state to every working age person so that they can survive when the great automation comes. Ben is more on board with the idea of sharing work rather than sharing wealth. A work sharing uh, that occurs naturally in the economy, as people who are better off, are in a better position to make that choice between your money or your life, making choices to spend more time um, doing the experiences they like, consuming those experiences, rather than um, uh, at work. So they're gradually drawing down their own work time, the more affluent among us, uh, uh, making room for the people who are you know, less affluent or don't have a job, a sort of a, 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 an automatic work sharing. Work sharing is common during economic crises. During the Great Recession of 2008, Germany, Austria, Belgium and the Netherlands successfully implemented work sharing as an alternative to layoffs. Draw down the labour force by voluntarily, some people more affluent, voluntarily leaving. Uh, And as that labour force is drawn down in aggregate, then theoretically more jobs will be be created. And that's one of the primary ways that organised labour and their supporters had to, to uh, deal with unemployment. It's shorter working hours. That solution is being looked at again. But it's not as simple as it sounds. Not all jobs can be easily chopped up into smaller pieces to be shared by two part-time employees instead of one. And currently, it's cheaper for employers to have one person work overtime than hire two part-timers and incur the labour costs like healthcare for each employee. Ben says it is still unlikely governments will lead the way and offer legislation providing a guaranteed annual income or limit working hours. But he has faith that ordinary people finding better things to do with their lives will shorten their work hours on their own, choosing to buy back their lives. I think the best way is still through the free market. People choosing, free people choosing extra time, free time, uh, to consume those things they want to consume. And uh, we're looking at uh, different ways 
to divide our life between uh, work and uh, other types of consumption activity. Ben says the Greeks hung a lot of importance on leisure and freedom. One of the words in, in, in Greek for freedom, skole, uh, a word for, from which we get our word scholarship and school, skole, it meant leisure, a freedom, a freedom to do those things that are worth doing in and for themselves. Um, golden age of Greece, a lot of talk about leisure. The Greeks and Romans hung a lot of importance on leisure, a freedom, an activity that is in and for itself associated with the virtues and that sort of thing. There's a lot of, lot of writing about the importance of that opportunity, that freedom to develop one's full humanity outside of necessity, outside of the constraints of the political order or otherwise. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company.